the little restaurant near Place de Terne by Georges Simenon. The clock in its black case, which regular customers had always known to stand in the same place, over the rack where the serviettes were kept, showed four minutes to nine. The advertising calendar behind the head of the woman sitting at the till, Madame Boucher, showed that it was the twenty-fourth day of December. Outside, a fine rain was falling. Inside, it was warm. A pot-bellied stove, like the ones there used to be in railway stations, sat in the very centre of the room. Its black chimney-pipe rose through empty space before disappearing into a wall. Madame Boucher's lips moved as she counted the banknotes. The bar's owner stood patiently by, watching her, while in his hand he was already holding the grey linen bag into which he put the contents of the till every evening. Albert, the waiter, glanced up at the clock, drifted over to them, and with a wink motioned towards a bottle which stood apart from the others on the counter. The landlord in turn looked at the time, gave a shrug, and nodded his assent. Just because they're the last ones here, there's no reason why we shouldn't give them a drink like the others, he muttered under his breath as he walked off with the tray. He had a habit of talking to himself while he was working. The landlord's car stood waiting by the curb outside. He lived some distance away, Joinville, where he had had a villa built for him. His wife had previously worked the tills in cafes. He had been a waiter. He still had painful feet from those days, as all waiters in bars and restaurants do, and wore special shoes. The back of his car was filled with attractively wrapped parcels which he was taking home for the Christmas Eve festivities. Madame Boucher would get the bus to Rue Culancourt, where she would be spending Christmas with her daughter, whose husband worked as a clerk at the town hall. Albert had two young kids, and their toys had been hidden for several days on top of the tall linen cupboard. He began with the man, putting a small glass on the table, which he then filled with armagnac. It's on the house, he said. He made his way past several empty tables to the corner where Jeanne, long, tall Jeanne, had just lit a cigarette, carefully positioned himself between her and the till and muttered, Drink up quick, so I can pour you another. Compliments of the landlord. Finally he got to the last table in the row. A young woman was taking her lipstick out of her handbag as she looked at herself in a small hand mirror. With the compliments of the house. She looked up at him in surprise. It's a custom here, a Christmas. Thank you. He would gladly have poured her a second glass too, but he didn't know her well enough, besides, as she was sitting too near the till. All done. He tipped the landlord another wink by way of asking him if it was at last time for him to go outside and pull down the shutters. It was already stretching hospitality to have stayed open this late for just three customers. At this point in the evening, in most of the restaurants in Paris, staff would be scurrying around setting out tables for the late-night Christmas Eve supper trade. But this was a small restaurant which offered a regular clientele modestly priced menus, a quiet place to eat just off Place de Town, in the least frequented part of the Faubourg Saint-Honoré. Few people had eaten there that evening, and more or less everyone had family or friends to go to, the ones left were these two women and a man, and the waiter was not bold enough to show them the door. But the fact that they went on sitting at their tables, from which the cloths had been removed, surely meant that they had no one waiting for them. He lowered the left-hand shutter, then the right, came back in, 
wavered over lowering the shutter over the door, which would force the reluctant customers to crouch down to get out. Uh, but it was now nine o'clock. The takings had been counted. Madame Boucher had put on her black hat, her coat and her tippet of martin fur, and was looking for her gloves. The landlord, his feet turned outwards, advanced a few steps. Long tall Jeanne was still smoking her cigarette, and the young woman had clumsily caked her mouth with lipstick. The restaurant was about to close. It was time. It was past the time. The landlord was about to say, as politely as he could, the time-honoured words, Ladies and gentlemen. But before he could pronounce one syllable, there was a single crisp sound, and the only male customer, his eyes suddenly wide open as if he'd been taken completely by surprise, swayed before toppling sideways on the bench seat that ran along the wall. He had walked in casually, without saying a word, without warning anybody that just as they were about to close, they would put a bullet in his head. It would be best if you waited here a few moments, the landlord told the two women. There's a policeman on duty on the corner of the street. Albert has gone to get him. Long, tall Jeanne had stood up to get a look at the dead man and, pausing by the stove, she lit another cigarette. The young woman in her corner sucked her handkerchief and, although it was hot there, was shaking all over. The policeman came in. His cape glistened with rain and gave off a barrack room smell. Do you know him? He's been eating here every day for years. He's Russian. Are you sure he's dead? If he is, uh, we'd better wait for the inspector. Uh, I phoned through to him. They did not have long to wait. The police station was close by in Rue de l'Etoile. The inspector wore an overcoat which was either badly cut or had shrunk in the rain, and a hat that had faded to no particular colour. He did not seem in a good mood. The first of tonight's crop, he muttered as he bent over. He's early. Usually it comes on them around midnight when everybody else is having most fun. He straightened up, holding a wallet in his hand. He opened it, and from it took a thick green identity card. Alexis Boreen, fifty-six years old, born in Vilna. He recited the words in an undertone as a priest says mass, and the way Albert talked to himself. Hotel de Bordeaux, Rue Bray, engineer. Was he an engineer? he asked the landlord. He might have been, a long time ago. But ever since he's been coming here, he's been working as an extra in films. I recognised him several times, uh, up on the screen. Any witnesses? asked the inspector as he turned round. There's me, my cashier, the waiter, and the two ladies there, if you'd like to take their names first. The inspector found himself face to face with Jeanne, who really was tall, half a head taller than him. Fancy seeing you here, papers? She handed him her card. He wrote down, Jeanne Chatrin, age 28, uh, profession, none? Oh, come on, no profession? It's what they put me down as at the town hall. Have you got the other card? She nodded. Up to date, is it? Still as charmless as ever, I see, she said with a smile. What about you? The question was directed at the badly made-up young woman, who stammered, I haven't got an identity card on me. My name's uh, Martin Cornu. Um, I'm 19, and I was born at Ypres. The tall woman gave a start and looked at her more closely. Ypres was very near where she came from, not more than five kilometres away. And there were lots of people in the area by the name of Cornu. The people who ran Ypres' largest café overlooking the beach were called Cornu. Address, growled Inspector Lognon. 
who was known locally as Inspector Hard Dunby. I live in an apartment building on the Rue Bray, uh, number 17. You'll probably be called for questioning at the station one of these days, and uh, now you can go. He was waiting for the municipal ambulance. Madame Boucher asked, uh, Can I go too? Yeah, if you want. Then, as she left, she called long, tall Jeanne back as she was making her way to the door. You don't happen to know him? I turned a trick with him, oh, ages ago, maybe six months, at least six months, because it was at the start of the summer. He was a sort of client who goes with girls to talk more than for any other reason, who asks you questions and thinks you're a sad case. Since then, he's never said hello, though whenever he comes in here, he always gives me a little nod. The young woman left. Jeanne followed her out, keeping very close behind her. She was wearing a cheap fur coat, which was far too short for her. She had always worn clothes which were too short. Everyone told her so, but she persisted, without knowing why, and the effect was to make her look even taller. Home for her was fifty metres further along on the right, in the total darkness of Square de Roule, where there were only artist studios and single-storey maisonettes. She had a small first-floor apartment with a private staircase and a door opening directly onto the street to which she had the key. She had promised herself she would go straight home that evening. She never stayed out on Christmas Eve. She had hardly any makeup on and was wearing very ordinary clothes, so much so that she had been shocked in the restaurant to see the young woman piling on the lipstick. Again, she took a few steps into the cul-de-sac perched on her high heels, which she could hear clacking on the cobbles. Then she realised that her spirits had dropped because of the Russian. She felt she needed to walk in light and fill her ears with noise, so she turned and headed towards the Place des Ternes, where the broad, brilliantly illuminated swathe that runs down from the Arc de Triomphe comes to an end. The cinemas, the theatres, the restaurant were all lit up, in the windows, printed pennants advertised the prices and menus of Christmas Eve suppers, and on every door could be read the word full. The streets were almost unrecognisable, for there was hardly anyone about. The young woman was now walking ten metres ahead of her, looking like someone who's not sure which way to go. She kept stopping in front of a shop window or at a street corner, uncertain whether to cross standing and staring at the photographs hanging on the walls of the warm foyer of a cinema. Anybody would think she's the one touting for custom. When he saw the Russian, Lonyo had muttered, the first of tonight's crop, he's early. Maybe he'd done it there rather than in the street, because it would have been an even more miserable end outside, or alone in his furnished room. In the restaurant, it had been quiet and peaceful, almost a family atmosphere. There a man could feel he was surrounded by familiar faces. It was warm. He'd even been offered a drink on the house. She gave a shrug. She had nothing else to do. She, too, halted outside shop windows and looked at the photos where the luminous neon signs turned to red and green and violet. And all the time she was aware of the young woman who was still walking just ahead of her. Who knows, perhaps she had come across her when she was a little girl, there were ten years between them. When she'd worked for the fisheries at Fécamp, uh, she was already as tall, but very skinny. Many a Sunday, she'd gone out with the boys to dances at Ypres. Sometimes she'd gone dancing at the Café Cornu, and the owner's children were always running around the place. Don't trip over the tadpoles, she would tell her partners. She called the kids tadpoles. Her own brothers and sisters were tadpoles too. 
She'd had six or seven of them back then, but there wouldn't be as many left there now. It was strange to think that this girl was probably one of the tadpoles from the Café Cornu. Above the shops, all along the avenue, were apartments, and nearly all of their windows were lit up. She gazed up at them, raising her head to the refreshing drizzle, sometimes catching a glimpse of shadows moving behind the curtains, and she wondered, what are they doing? Most likely they would be reading the newspaper or decorating the Christmas tree as they waited for midnight. In some cases the lady of the house would soon be receiving guests and was now worrying about whether the dinner would turn out right. Thousands of children were sleeping, or pretending to be asleep, and almost all the people who had flocked to the cinemas and theatres had booked tables in restaurants for their Christmas Eve supper or reserved their seats in church for midnight mass, for you had to book your seat in churches too. Otherwise, perhaps the girl might have gone there. All the people she passed either were in groups already in high spirits or were couples clinging to each other more tightly, it seemed, than on ordinary days. Lone pedestrians were also in more of a hurry than on normal days. They gave the impression that they were on their way somewhere, that they had people waiting for them. Was that why the Russian had put a bullet in his head? and also why Inspector Hart Dunby had said that there would be more to follow. It was the day that did it. Of course it was. The girl in front of her had halted on the corner of Roubray. The third tenement along was a hotel, and there were others too, discreet establishments, where rooms could be taken for short periods. Actually, it was there that Jeanne had gone with her first ever customer. The Russian had been living until today in the hotel next door, very probably on the very top floor, because only the poorest rooms were let by the month or the week. What was the Cornu girl looking at? Fat Emily? Now there was a tart, without either shame or religion. She was there even though it was Christmas, and she couldn't even bother to walk a few steps up and down so that she wouldn't look quite so obvious. She stayed put in the doorway with the words furnished rooms emblazoned just above her purple hat. But there she was, old, well past forty, enormously fat now, and her feet, which over time had become as sensitive as those of the owner of the restaurant, were almost terminally tired of ferrying all that flab around. Evening, Jeanne, she sang out across the street. Jeanne didn't answer. Why was she following the girl? For no particular reason probably because she didn't have anything else to do and was afraid of going home. But the Cornu girl didn't know where she was going either. She had turned into Roubray automatically and was mincing along unhurriedly, tightly buttoned up in her blue two-piece suit, which was far too thin for this time of year. She was a pretty girl, touched chubby, with a diverting little rear end which she wiggled as she walked. In the restaurant, seen from the side, the way her full high breasts had pushed out the front of her jacket had been very noticeable. If any man comes on to you tonight, dearie, thought Jeanne, it'll be your own stupid fault. Especially that evening, because respectable men, the ones with family, friends or just social acquaintances, weren't out wandering the streets. But the little fool didn't know that. Did she even know what fat Emily was doing standing outside the entrance of the hotel? From time to time, as she walked past the bar, she would stand on tiptoe and look inside. Ah, she was going into one. Albert had done her no favours by giving her that drink. At the beginning, it had been the same with Jeanne too. 
Unfortunately for her, if she'd had one drink, she'd have to have another. And when she'd had three, she no longer knew what she was doing. Wasn't like that anymore, not by long chalk. Nowadays, she could certainly put it away before she'd had enough. The bar was called Chez Fred. It had a long mahogany counter and the kind of high stools on which women cannot perch without showing a lot of leg. It was virtually empty, just one man at the back, a musician or maybe a dancer, already in a dinner jacket, who would shortly be going to work in some night spot nearby. He was eating a sandwich and drinking beer. Martine Cornu hoisted herself onto a stool by the door against the wall. Jeanne went in and sat down a little further along. Armagnac, she ordered, since that was what she had begun drinking. The girl looked at the rows of bottles which, lit from above, formed a rainbow of subtle colours. Uh, a Benedictine, she said. The barman turned the knob of a radio and sickly sweet music filled the bar. Why didn't Jeanne just walk up to her and ask her straight out if she really was a cornu from Ypres? There were cornus at Fecamp too, cousins, but they were butchers in Rue du Havre. The musician or dancer at the back of the bar had already noticed Martine and was languidly giving her the eye. Got any cigarettes? the girl asked the barman. She wasn't used to smoking, as was patently obvious from the way she opened the packet and blinked as she released the smoke. It was ten o'clock, another two hours, and it would be midnight. Everyone would kiss and hug. In every house the radio would blare out verses of Oh Holy Night and everybody would join in. Really, it was all very silly. Jeanne, who never had problems speaking to anybody, felt quite incapable of approaching this girl who hailed from her part of the world and whom she'd probably met when she was just a child. But it wouldn't have been unpleasant. She'd have said, Seeing as how you're all alone and looking sorry for yourself, why don't we spend a quiet Christmas Eve together? She knew exactly how to mind her manners. She wouldn't talk to her about men or about being on the game. There must be a whole lot of people they both knew at Fecom and Ypres whom they could talk about. And why shouldn't she take her home with her? Her place was very neat, very tidy. She had lived for long enough in rented rooms to know what it meant to have a place of her own. She could take the girl there without feeling any sense of shame, because she never brought men home with her. Other girls did. For long, tall Jeanne, it was a matter of principle. And few apartments were as trim and spotless as hers. She even kept felt undersoles behind the front door, which she used like skates on rainy days, so as not to dirty the wooden floor, which she kept highly polished, uh, like an ice rink. They would buy a couple of bottles, something good, but not too strong. There were charcutiers still open, which sold different kinds of pâté, lobsters, scallops, and assorted tasty and attractively presented dishes, which they couldn't afford to eat every day of the week. She watched her out of the corner of her eye. Perhaps eventually she would have spoken to her, if the door hadn't opened at that moment, and two men hadn't come in, the kind Jeanne disliked, the sort of men who, when they enter a room, always look around as if they owned a place. Even if Fred, said the shorter of the two, who was also fatter, they had already taken stock of the bar, an uninterested glance at the musician sitting at the back, and a closer look at Jeanne, who, now that she was sitting down, didn't seem as tall as she did standing up, which, incidentally, was why she often worked out of bars. Of course, they knew at a glance exactly what she was. On the other hand, they stared insistently at Martine, then sat very close to her. Do you mind? 
She shrank back against the wall, still holding her cigarette as clumsily as before. What are you having, Willie? Usual. Usual, Fred. They were the type of men who often have foreign accents and are heard talking about horse racing or discussing cars. They were also the sort who knew how to choose the right moment to give a woman the glad eye, walk her into a corner of the room and whisper sweet nothings into her ear. And wherever they happen to be, they always need to make a phone call. The barman started mixing them a complicated drink while they watched him closely. Hasn't the baron been in? He said he wanted one of you to call him. He's gone to see Francis. The taller of the pair went into the phone booth. The other moved closer to Martine. That stuff's no good for the stomach, he said, clicking the catch of a gold cigarette case. She looked at him in surprise. Jeanne wanted to call out to her. Don't answer! Because the moment she started talking to him, it would be difficult to shake him off. What's no good for the stomach? She was behaving like the dumb cluck that she was. She even forced herself to smile, probably because she'd been taught to smile when talking to people, or maybe because she really believed it made her look like something off the cover of a magazine. That's stuff you're drinking, uh, but it's Benedictine. She really was from Fécamp, way out in the sticks. She honestly thought that saying the name was the last word on the subject. Course it is, there's nothing like it for upsetting the insides. Fred, yes sir? Bring us another here for the lady and make it snappy. Coming up, but, she tried to protest, just a drink between friends. No need to be scared. It's Christmas Eve, isn't it? Yes or no? The tall one straightened his tie in the mirror as he stepped out of the phone booth. He cottoned on quickly. Do you live round here? Uh, not far. Barman, called Jan. Give me one of the same. Armagnac, no. One of whatever it was you just poured. A sidecar? Go on, then. She felt furious for no good reason and wanted to say, Listen, darling, it won't be long now before you pass out. These guys play dirty. If you wanted a drink, couldn't you have chosen a more suitable bar or gone home and got drunk there? Of course, she herself hadn't gone home either, even though she was used to living alone. But does anybody want to go home on Christmas Eve knowing there is no one waiting there and with the prospect of lying in bed listening to the sound of music and happy voices coming through the wall. Soon the doors of cinemas and theatres would open, and out would spill impatient crowds who would rush away to the tens of thousands of tables they had reserved in the most modern restaurant in the most far-flung parts of town. Christmas Eve junketings to suit all pockets. Except, and this was the point, you couldn't reserve a table for one, not least because it wouldn't be fair on folk who go out to have a good time with friends. Not fair at all for you to sit by yourself in a corner and watch the goings-on. What would that make you? A wet blanket. You would see them form into huddles and whisper to each other, wondering if they should ask you to join them because they felt sorry for you. Nor could you go out and roam around the streets because if you did, every cop on the beat would eye you suspiciously curious to see if you intended to use some dark corner to do what the Russian had done, or if, uh, despite the cold, one of them was going to have to jump into the Seine and fish you out. What do you think of it? It's not very strong. If her parents really ran a bistro, she should have known about such things. But it was what women always say. It's as if they're always expecting to be given liquid fire in a glass but when it turns out to be not as strong as they'd thought, they stop being so suspicious. Work in the shop, do you? 
No. Typist? Yes. Been in Paris long. He had teeth like a film star's and a moustache made of two commas. Do you like dancing? Uh, sometimes. Oh, they were laying it on very thick. How pleasant the thought of exchanging idle chat like this in such company. Maybe the girl believed they really were men of the world. The gold case held out to her and the Egyptian cigarettes too probably dazzled her eyes, as did the large diamond ring worn by the man closest to her. Fill us up again, Fred. Uh, not for me, thanks. Anyway, it's time I... Time you... I'm sorry? It's time you... Did what? You can't be going home to bed at half past ten on Christmas Eve. It was weird sitting on the sidelines and watching a scene like this being acted out always makes it look so utterly stupid. But to be involved, to play a part in it. What a bird brain, Jan muttered as she smoked one cigarette after another without taking her eyes off the trio. Naturally, Martine did not dare to admit that yes, she was actually intending to go home to bed. If you've got a date, don't be so nosy. Got a boyfriend? What's it to you? Well, I'd be more than happy to keep him waiting for a bit. Why? Long tall Jeanne could have recited the whole script for them. She knew it by heart. She'd also caught the look aimed at the barman, which meant, keep it coming. But in her present condition, the erstwhile tadpole from Ypres could have been plied with the stiffest of cocktails, and she would have found them not strong at all. Likewise her lipstick... Didn't she have enough on already? Yet she still felt the need for more to open her handbag and showed she used Oubigan lipstick, but also to demonstrate her pout, because all women believe they are irresistible when they push out their lips to receive that impudent little implement. Think you're gorgeous. If you could only see yourself in a mirror, you'd soon realise which of the two of us looks most like a tart. But not quite because the difference is not just a matter of a little more or less war paint. The proof of this was provided by the two men who, as they came in, had needed only a quick look to pigeonhole Jean. Ever been to the Monaco? No, what is it? Hear that, Albert, she's never been to the Monaco. Don't make me laugh. But you do like dancing. Now look, sweetheart. Jeanne was expecting the word, but later rather than sooner, the man wasn't wasting much time. His leg was already pressed tight against one of the girls in such a way that she couldn't draw it back, for she was too close to the wall. It's one of the most amazing night spots in Paris, regulars only. Bob Allison and his jazz band. Never heard of Bob Allison either. I don't go out much. The two men exchanged winks, obvious where this was leading. A few minutes from now, the small fat one would remember that he had an urgent appointment so that he could leave the field clear for his friend. Not so fast, you creeps, Jeanne murmured, her mind made up. She herself had also downed three drinks one after the other, not counting the free ones she'd had courtesy of the landlord of the restaurant. She wasn't drunk, she never was, not completely, but she was beginning to attach great importance to certain notions. For example, the idea that this silly kid came from the same place as she did, that she was a tadpole, then she thought of fat Emily standing in the doorway of the hotel. It was in that very hotel, though not on a Christmas Eve, that she had gone upstairs with a man for the first time. Could you give me a light? She had slid off her stool and, with a cigarette dangling between her lips, now joined the smaller of the two men. 
He was also aware of what this meant and was not best pleased. He gave her a critical once-over. Standing upright, he must have been a good head shorter than her, and the way she carried herself was mannish. Like to buy a girl a drink? If you insist. Fred? Coming up. While this was going on, the kid eyed her with a feeling close to indignation, as if an attempt was being made to steal something that belonged to her. Hey, you three don't look like you're having much fun. And laying one hand on the shoulder of the man next to her, Jeanne started belting out the words of the song the radio was playing softly in the background. Of all the bird-brained, she kept saying to herself every ten minutes, how can anybody be so... But oddest of all, the bird brain in question continued looking at her with an expression of utmost contempt. But one of Willie's arms had now entirely disappeared behind Martine's back, and the hand wearing the diamond ring lay heavily on the front of her blouse. She now lay slumped, literally, on the red plush seat against the wall of the Monaco, and there was now no need to put her glass in her hand, because more often than not she herself kept clamouring for it and gulped down the champagne greedily. Each time she drained her glass she burst into a fit of convulsive laughter and then clung even more tightly to the man she was with. It was not yet midnight. Most of the tables were unoccupied. Sometimes the two of them had the dance floor to themselves. Willie kept his nose buried in the short hair at the back of his partner's head, and ran his lips over the pimply skin of the nape of her neck. "'You in a bad mood or something?' Jeanne asked the other man. "'Why? Because you didn't win first prize? Think I'm too tall?' "'A bit. Doesn't show lying down.' It was the crack she had made thousands of times. It was almost a chat-up line, and just as vapid as the sweet nothings the two others were whispering to each other, but at least she wasn't soft-soaping him because she was enjoying it. Do you reckon Christmas Eve is fun? Not especially. Do you think anyone really enjoys it? I suppose some people must. Earlier on, in the restaurant where I had dinner, th this man shot himself in a corner without making a fuss, looking like he was sorry for disturbing us and making a mess on the floor. Haven't you got anything more cheerful to say? All right, order another bottle. I'm thirsty. It was the only option remaining, get the tadpole blind drunk, because she was stubbornly refusing to realise what was happening, make her sick to her stomach, so sick that she puked, and all she'd be fit for was to be packed off home and put to bed. Cheers, sweetie, and likewise to all the cornu of Yport town and district. You're from there, from Fecamp. There was a time when I used to go dancing in Yport every Sunday. Cut it out, snapped Willie. We've not come here to listen to your life stories. When they'd been in the bar at the Roubray, it had seemed on the cards that one more glass would have finished the tadpole off, but instead the opposite had happened. Perhaps being out in the fresh air for a few minutes had been enough to revive her. Maybe it was the champagne. The more she drank, the wider awake she became. But she was no longer the same young girl she had been in the restaurant. Willie was now slotting cigarettes ready-lit between her lips, and she was drinking out of his glass. It was sickening to see, and that hand of his never stopped pawing her blouse and skirt. Not much longer now until everyone would be hugging and kissing, and that repulsive man would clamp his lips on the mouth of the girl, who would be stupid enough to faint away in his arms. "'That's what we're all like at her age. They should ban Christmas altogether, and all the other public holidays too.' 
but now it was long tall Jeanne who wasn't thinking straight. What say we go on to some other place? Maybe this time the fresh air would have the opposite effect, and Martine would finally pass out. And if she did, most likely the two-bit jiggler wouldn't try to take her home and go up to her room. We're fine here. Meanwhile, Martine, still glaring suspiciously at Jeanne, talked about her in a whisper to her beau. She was probably saying, Why is she interfering? Who is she? She looks like a... Suddenly, the sound of jazz stopped. For a few seconds, there was silence. People rose up to their feet. The band struck up, Oh, holy night. Oh, yes, it was here too. And Martine found herself squeezed tightly to Willie's chest. Their bodies melded into one from feet to foreheads, and their mouths scandalously stuck together. Hey, you disgusting pair! Long, tall Jeanne bore down on them, shrill and loud-mouthed, arms and legs moving jerkily like a puppet with its strings crossed. Aren't you going to give anyone else a look in? And then, raising her voice, Shift yourself, girl! Make a bit of room for me! When they didn't move, she grabbed Martine by the shoulder and yanked her back. You still haven't got it, have you, you stupid cow? Maybe you think your precious Willie here has got eyes only for you, but what if I got jealous? People at other tables were listening and watching. I haven't said anything up to now. I didn't interfere because I'm a decent sort of girl, but that punter is mine. Startled, the girl said, What's she saying? Willie tried to push her away but failed. What am I saying? What am I saying? I'm saying you're a rotten little tart and you stole him off me. I'm saying you're not going to get away with it and then I'm going to smash your pretty face in. I'm saying, take that for starters and that and this. She went at it with a will, punching, scratching, grabbing handfuls of hair while onlookers tried in vain to separate them. Long, tall Jeanne was as strong as a man. You've been treating me like dirt. You're asking for it. Martine did her best to fight her off, scratching back, even sinking her small teeth into the hand of her opponent, who had her by one ear. Calm down, ladies! Gentlemen, please! But Jeanne kept screeching at the top of her voice and managed to knock the table over. Glasses and bottles shattered, women customers fled from the battle zone, screaming while Jeanne finally succeeded in tripping the girl and putting her on the floor. Ah, you've been asking for trouble and you've come to the right place for it. They were now both on the floor, grappling with each other, spattered with flecks of blood from cuts caused by the broken glass. The band was playing Oh Holy Night as loudly as possible to cover the noise. Some of the customers went on singing. Eventually the door opened. Two officers from the cycle-mounted police patrol marched in and headed for the fighting women. Unceremoniously they nudged them with the toes of their boots. Come on, you two, on your feet. It was that bitch who... Shut up. You can explain down at the station. As chance would have it, the two men, Willie and his pal, seemed to have vanished. Come along with us. But, Martine protested, keep your mouth shut. Save it for later. Long, tall Jeanne turned to look for her hat, which she had lost in the scuffle. Outside, on the pavement, she called to the doorman. Jeanne, keep my hat safe for me. I'll come and get it tomorrow. It's almost new. If you don't keep quiet said one of the policemen, jangling his handcuffs. Ah, put a sock in it, Dumbo, we'll be as good as gold. Martine's legs gave way. It was only now, all of a sudden, that she started to feel sick. They had to stop in a dark recess to let her empty her stomach against a wall, on which was written in white letters, No urinating. She was crying a mixture of sobs and hiccups. I don't know what's get into her. We're having such a nice time. Come off it. 
I'd like a glass of water. You get one at the station. It wasn't far to the police station in the Rue de l'Etoile. It turned out that Lognon, the hard done by inspector, was still on duty. A pair of glasses was perched on his nose. He was busy, probably writing up his report about the death of the Russian. He recognised Jeanne, then the girl. He looked at each of them in turn, not understanding. You two knew each other. Looks like it's sunshine. You're drunk, he barked at Jeanne. What about the friend? One of the policemen explained. They were both rolling on the floor of the Monaco, tearing each other's hair out. Inspector, Martine started to protest. That's enough. Lock him up till the van comes on its round. The men were on one side, not many, mostly old down-and-outs, and the women on the other, at the far end, separated from them by a wire grill. There were benches along the walls. A pint-sized flower seller was crying. What are you here for? They found cocaine in my posies. It wasn't nothing to do with me. You don't say. Who's she? A tadpole. A what? A tadpole. Don't try and work it out. Careful, she's going to throw up again. That'll make it smell like roses in here if the paddy wagon's late. By three in the morning, there were a good hundred of them in the lock-up at police HQ and Quai de l'Horloge. Men still on one side and women on the other. In thousands of houses, people were still probably dancing around Christmas trees. Digestive systems were certain to be struggling with the turkey, foie gras and black pudding. The restaurants and bars would not close until it started to get light. Have you got the message at last, you silly cow? Martine was curled up on a bench as highly polished by use as any church pew. She was still feeling sick. Her features were drawn, her eyes unfocused and her lips pursed. I don't know what I ever did to you. You didn't do anything, girl. You're a common... Shh, don't say that word in this place. Because there are several dozen of them here who might skin you alive. I hate you. You could be right. Even so, maybe you wouldn't be feeling so clever at this moment if you were in some hotel in Roubray. The girl was clearly trying to make a big effort to understand. Don't bother trying to work it out. Just believe me when I say you're better off here even if it isn't comfortable, and don't smell so good. Come eight o'clock, the inspector will give you a short lecture that you thoroughly deserve, and then you can get the metro back to the Place de Terme. Me? They'll give me the usual medical and take my card off me so I can't work for a week. I, I don't understand. Ah, oh, forget it. Did you really think that spending the night with that creep, and on Christmas Eve too, would have been nice? Did you? and how proud of your precious Willie you'd have been tomorrow morning. Do you really think people didn't feel disgusted when they saw you hanging round the neck of that cheap crook? But now at least your future is still in your hands, and you have the Russian to thank for it, you know. Why? I don't know exactly, it's just a thought. First, because it was on his account that I didn't go straight home. Then again, maybe it was him who made me want to be Father Christmas for once in my life. Now, move up and make room for me. Then she added, already more than drowsy, just imagine if once in their lives everybody behaved like Father Christmas. Her voice grew softer the deeper she drifted into sleep. Just imagine it, right? Just once. And when you think of how many people there are on this earth. Then finally, still muttering, with her head on Martine's thigh for a pillow, can't you stop your legs jumping all the time? So that was the little restaurant near Place de Terne by the Belgian writer 
who of course is famous for his uh, detective stories set in Paris, Georges-Joseph Christian Simenon, born 12th, 13th February. Don't know how that works. Uh, don't know how that works. 1903 in Liège, Belgium, and passed away on 4th September 1989. He was renowned for creating the iconic fictional detective Jules Maigret. Simenon's uh, literary legacy extends beyond the realm of detective fiction, with his impressive body of work comprising approximately 400 novels. I want you to hear that. 400 novels, 21 volumes of memoirs and numerous short stories, totaling sales of other, over 500 million copies. That's in, extraordinary. Well, uh, Maigret bought Simenon widespread fame. He also garnered critical acclaim for his uh, roman dur or hard novels, demonstrating his versatility as a writer. Esteemed literary figures such as Max Jacob, François Mauriac and André Gide praised Simenon with Gide himself. Uh, hailing him as a great novelist, perhaps the greatest in contemporary French literature. Simenon's life unfolded against a backdrop of diverse locales. After being born, I hope you're getting this French, after being born and raised in Liège, he spent considerable periods residing in France, 1922 to 45, the United States, 1946 to 55, and ultimately Switzerland, uh, 1957 to 1989. His literary creations were deeply influenced by his semi-autobiographical reflections, drawing inspiration from his formative years in Liège, extensive travels across Europe and the world, wartime experiences, troubled marriages and numerous love affairs. Renowned for his psychological insights and vivid portrayal of time and places, Simenon's novels have been lauded by critics such as John Banville, the Irish writer, yeah? Among his notable, who was a fantastic prose stylist, to be fair. Among his notable works are the Saint Fiacre Affair, Monsieur Ears, Engagement, Act of Passion, The Snow Was Dirty, and The Cat. Simenon's enduring impact on literature lies not only in the enduring popularity of Jules Maigret, but also in the rich tapestry of narratives that reflect the complexities of human nature and the varied landscapes of his own life. Um... When we look at this particular story, um, so this is, um, you know, come out as part of the classic detective stories, but it's for Christmas. So we had to look for a detective story that was set at Christmas. And this is why we ended on this one. You know, we came, um, landed on this one. Now, it, um, if you, do you ever, I don't know if you ever go on Goodreads. Now, Goodreads is sort of the, place where people who love writing reviews about books love and now you've got to understand something about critics critics if they just say this is great yeah do you know what i think i think you know professional critics feel they are able to say that about particular works but amateur critics tend to want to pull things apart you know they think they've they've kind of read criticism and they're like oh do you know what it's not perfect so goodreads is that place that's where they go and um it's it's famous for its terrible reviews and or damned by faint praise. Anybody you think is a good writer, you will go and read their reviews on Goodreads and they'll get three stars. So, uh, and this has got 3.6, um, uh, 3.6 uh, from the raters there. And I thought it was a really good story. Um, this was part of a three-story collection called A Maigre Christmas and Other Stories uh, from first published in 1951. This was translated, and I think it's always, you always should, and I'm not even, you, you must give uh, credit to the translator, because the transla- translation is itself part of the literary um, work that moves it into another language, which is, of course, going to be different, and it's going to be filtered through the translator. So a good translator makes a big, big, big difference. Um, three stars 
Follow this one carefully, says, I won't say his name. It can become confusing, at least it was for this reader. Initially, the action takes place at a small restaurant in Paris titled The Little Restaurant Near Plastic Town. The uh, story has a rare subtitle, A Christmas Story for Grown-Ups. I was expecting Maigret, the stoic police detective. He's not here. Um, But it's not disappointing. So, do you know what? He thought it was pretty good, but he still gave it three stars. Uh, Somebody... um, yeah, somebody gave it a one star. So, uh, but, and then there's an actually really nice review of it um, by uh, Jessica Harrison, editorial director of Penguin Classics UK. And she talks about the, the um, she talks, miracles and disillusionment, generosity and greed, love and loneliness are the classic themes of the Christmas tale to which every festive story writer invariably returns. Isn't that good as a start? I'm going to save that that article. Um, and I think that's absolutely right. This, I, I was reading recently, perhaps one of the reasons I picked this Maigret, um, not this Maigret, Simenon story, was that I was, I get a, um, a quarterly publication called uh, Slightly Foxed, which is, it's people giving reviews of their favourite books, so there's no bad reviews. People pick an out-of-print book, usually, that they've loved, or an old classic that they've loved. It may not be out of print. And they say why they love it. And um, this particular article, and I can't remember who wrote it, it was in the latest Winter 23 uh, edition of Slightly Foxed. Somebody may know, uh, and I f- I'm sorry for not knowing. But uh, get get it. Sign up to Slightly Foxed. Get on. It's definitely if you like books and stories, I, it's a it's a wonderful. I really look forward to it each quarter. A little slim thing full of essays and um, you know quite famous people sometimes talking about the books, but it doesn't matter that they're famous. It's the, the love of the book that counts to me. So anyway, uh, this particular person's talking about Georges Simenon and saying that uh, Maigret, his character was you know very dull actually not dull but as a dull man a boring man he didn't leave an exciting life he was uh, steadily married he didn't have any fancy he wasn't Sherlock Holmes with these uh, strange idiosyncrasies he was a solid kind of guy whereas of course Simonon wasn't Simonon was um, a very um, uh, colourful guy which we've already heard about his multiple affairs and things like that Um, but he this reviewer talks about how Basically, although um, Simonon was writing genre novels, detective novels in this case, he has a great, he's an existentialist, I can't remember who called him that. These are existential questions, and this is what this is about, you know? So, and although the reviewer on Goodreads, you know, fair, I'm not having a go at him, I'm just saying, um, said it was confusing. It seemed to me that um, it starts off, and that suicide at Christmas sets off the imp- this important we often feel like this at christmas don't we? we the year comes to an end christmas new year period and we take stock of our lives and we think what have we done what have we done and what do we want to do what are we going to do differently and better and that is inevitably to do with our place in the universe and what are we for what am i for and i think the you know people a lot of people are depressed and the key question when people are depressed is what's the point in me you know and i think um this is what this story is about. It's an existentialist question, existential question. Um, what am I for? And this rather, she's not a, she's not a VIP courtesan, is she? She's a she's a down at heel old long tall Jeanne is a down at heel prosy, really. And um, but with a heart of gold, 
uh, as they often have. And the Russian kills himself completely. It's never explained why. And I think that's important. I think that just really adds to it. The fact is that the futility, If it, by explaining things, we kind of give them meaning. And, and I think that Simonon is trying to... Trying, I think what he was trying to do, I don't know, he hasn't said to me, was that um, there is no meaning to this. And that, and that is the big challenge to a meaningless life or a life with meaning. So, uh, so this, this rube, I think, this young girl, this easy mark, we never know what on earth she is doing, but we, but we draw the inference that, um, you know, life is not going well. Something's amiss, awry with her life, and she's wandering around on, on Christmas Eve. She's, the fact is, she's in the restaurant in the first place when everybody else has gone, putting unnecessary makeup on. What's that about? Is it wanting to be loved? Is it wanting to be attractive? Who knows? I don't know. Maybe something like that. And, uh, and so our long tall Jean follows her and saves her from regret. And I think the issue, the, the, it's clearly pointed out that Jean herself that's that's a step that she took that she regrets. It's a mistake she made in her life that's brought her to a place where she is. And she can be Father Christmas. She can actually save another young woman who's 10 years younger from, than her from the same part of the world, from going down the same path that she regrets. And so I think it's actually a, a lovely story. It's like um, almost like the fairy tale in New York, isn't it? You know, they're in the drunk tank. It's Christmas Eve, babe, in the drunk tank. Um. You know, and 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 so I think um, when Jessica Harrison talks about the Christmas tale, is 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 miracles and disillusionment, generosity, greed, love and loneliness, the classic themes of the Christmas tale, and it is about how we um, how we come to terms with it. So that's why I picked this for Christmas. Uh, it has a detective in it, uh, it has a shooting in it, but it's not about that. It's about kind of minor crime, I suppose. These are these are tawdry people that you find in, uh, you know, the the cheap hoods. I like that word that you find. Um, but um, pretty good. Okay, Merry Christmas, everybody. And I hope uh, this Christmas for you has more miracles than disillusionment, and has more love than loneliness. And even if it has a bit of loneliness, that that um, is a precursor to. A better time coming. I wish I wish that for you all. Bye. Merry Christmas. <laughs>